Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources, and while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting Alabama Ag Credit. And also Bucks Island Marine. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. You can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. I'm Joe Baia here with my co-host Clint Flowers. And Clint, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I've always wanted to do is jump on one of those big giant forestry mulchers and just haul off through the woods with them. I mean, it just seems like it'd be so cool to just start mowing stuff down whenever you want to. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Not me jumping on a forestry mulcher because that would be scary for everyone involved, but really when you need a forestry mulcher and when you don't. But before we get there, let's go check in and get another current timber market update with Jonathan Smith of Timber Mart South. Jonathan, welcome back to Hunting Land, man. What state are we going to be covering today? Well, Jonathan, welcome back to Hunting Land, man. What's been happening in Arkansas, and, and what data set are we going to be looking at today? Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, today, we're going to look at first quarter 2021. Jonathan, starting with the pine products, and how's hardwood looking? Uh, hardwood is pretty good. Uh, hardwood saw timber was at $35.74 this quarter, and uh, hardwood pulpwood was at $6.75. And how does that compare back to? fourth quarter uh looking at the previous quarter your pine products were up for pine saw timber and pine chipping saw uh pine pulp wood was uh pretty flat your hardwood products were again saw timber was up slightly compared quarter over quarter and then pretty flat for hardwood pulp wood so pretty quiet the the big uh, swing there uh, in prices was uh, your pine saw timber and pine chipping saw had your largest increases quarter over quarter and compared to the previous four quarters. What do you attribute that to, Jonathan? I mean, you know, uh, we've been hearing a lot about the the pulp markets are being are going crazy. It doesn't sound like that's trickled down to the landowner just yet. Remains to be seen if it will or not. Are the lumber prices driving some of that saw timber increase, or is there any any reasons for the trend? The lumber prices and the the pulp prices are playing a factor in that. You know, I hate to keep saying over and over each time we talk, but uh, we've still got a lot of wood on the stump. But you know, when weather plays a factor. Uh, and keeps the loggers out of the woods, then there tends to be an opportunity for some price increase for the landowners, which is most likely what happened here. Out in the Gulf states, you had a, a deep freeze back in February. So that shut a lot of things down and provided an opportunity for the landowners if they had timber that they could get out opportunistically. You know, I've been reading a little bit this week about carbon offsets. And, you know, that's something that's been around for a while, but it's getting a little bit more attention in the media now. But basically, starting to see landowners being paid to leave their trees standing. In the past, has that had any effect on supply? You know, with regards to you're talking about, we still got a lot of trees on the stump. So do you anticipate that if that becomes more prevalent practice, that that will decrease supply and and uh, affect 
the timber markets themselves? It definitely could. You know, at this point, I still think there's probably more more questions than answers on some of that. But, uh, you know, and getting it to the private uh, non-industrial landowner is going to be uh, a little bit of a challenge. How do you measure that? Uh, how do you facilitate it or quantify it? You know, that's one thing is how do you quantify what, what's being sequestered, but also how do you monitor that and make sure that uh, your smaller landowners are indeed not harvesting or, or not conducting those uh, forestry activities uh, that they've agreed to offset. You know, I think I think there could be an opportunity there. We definitely have the wood uh, on the stump, and uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, there is a lot of energy around that right now, getting that into the the private landowner sector. Yeah, I know there's several companies that are working on a, you know, kind of a, for lack of a better word, a marketplace uh, for those smaller uh, landowners to be able to participate. But it's definitely going to be an interesting trend to watch. And speaking of Arkansas, what else is going on in the state? Uh, Any changes uh, with regards to the timber industry there? Not a lot going on, you know, uh, as far as recent news, uh, the deep freeze, as I mentioned Three of the four pulp mills that uh, reported temporary downtime due to the freeze were in Arkansas. Uh, you had Clearwater Paper out in McGee, uh, Domtar in Ashdown, and Pact of Evergreen in Pine Bluff. Then on the sawmill side, uh, with the strong repair and remodel and robust housing starts, uh, Resolute is uh, restarting uh, sawmill in El Dorado. And then on the Pellets and biomass side, Highland Pellets is looking to do an expansion in uh, Pine Bluff. Uh, that's going, according to their announcement, should add about 175,000 more tons of pellet production. Uh, and then one that we haven't really paid a lot of attention to, but it making a little bit of noise is uh, Danson's USA is uh, announcing a new facility for barbecue wood pellets uh, in Hope, Arkansas. Uh, they will initially consume about 100,000 tons, but they have plans to expand up to about 300,000 tons a year. So, you know, there's some some expansion going on in that smaller smaller sector, smaller diameter wood. In areas you've got active pellet markets, how much of an impact do you typically see it have on, on normal pulpwood prices that may have not had that competition before? We're beginning to see a little bit of influence there. Um, you know, it's markets work and uh, competition works. And uh, so as the biomass and uh, pellet facilities are, are getting more recognition in the marketplace and building up some of their supplier relationships, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of uh, influence there. Makes me want to run out and buy one of those grills. <laughs> yeah. Right. Just doing my part, you know, support the small land. There you go. Well, Jonathan, thanks for giving us a timber market update again this month. Uh, if folks want to get a subscription to Timber Mart South, tell us everywhere that you guys cover so that folks, if they want to stay up to date on prices and, and news and market trends, uh, how they can do that. Yes. Please look for us on our, our website at timbermartsouth.com. That's probably 
the easiest way to get in touch with us. We cover from uh, eastern Texas to Virginia, we cover 11 states in the southeast. We divide our states up into two regions per state, so we have 22 regions. We would look forward to the opportunity to help you get good information so that you can make the best management decisions and uh, work with your local consultants. Well, Jonathan, it was good to have you back on. We'll look forward to having you on again. Uh, until the next time, stay safe out there, man. We'll talk to you soon. Yes, sir. Sounds good. Thank you. Those big, giant forestry mulchers, they've become a tool in the tool belt for landowners that it's relatively new, I would say. What's been your experience with them? I mean, uh, I don't hardly ever remember seeing them as kids. It seems like something that's, that's kind of new. out. Yeah, and there's, you know, they really started being more prevalent, I'd say, in the last five or six years. And then depending on where you are uh, in our audience, you know, around here, you the first thing that comes to mind for me is the little small versions with the, you know, the skid steer based operations with the small heads on them that that are great, but they don't cover a lot of ground quickly. And, but there are a lot bigger and better options out there. Yeah. And we're going to learn all about the different types of options that are out there, what applications they're really needed when you ought to be doing that kind of work. And, uh, when you need to be scheduling that kind of work with Brian Shepard of brush clearing services, Brian, welcome back to hunting land. You know, we, we talked a little bit about forestry mulcher when we had you on last time talking about, prescribed burns and and that type of thing and forestry mulches certainly have applications with regards to setting up for a, a prescribed fire uh, but there's other areas too that they can be used so before we get there tell everybody a little bit about brush clearing services and then i want you to tell us about the differences in the types of forestry mulchers that are out there joe it's good to be on the show again uh, i think the fire show was was real good it provided a lot of good information and we talked about a the benefits of fire but we also too know that we can only go so far with fire and we have to use other methods and other tools in some cases and uh, forestry mulchers are uh, just another tool in the toolbox for these landowners to think about now uh, we've been in business since 2005 and we do a lot of work for state and federal agencies along with a lot of private landowner work especially with these, uh, with these landowners that are purchasing these recreational properties now for hunting and then, of course, with timber, but most of it's recreational. You know, we use these machines for uh, various uh, habitat restoration projects, mid-story uh, removal, fire breaks, reclaiming uh, existing roads, food plot expansion. There's just there's there's a lot of different applications for it now the fortune mulcher is always not going to be the the best method and I'm, I'm very transparent with people when it comes to that when i go to their property i want to be clear on on what's best for for their needs and for the resource but these these fortune mulchers have gotten real popular they you know a lot of you see them we see them a lot on on the skid steer size machines now that's an attachment that you can buy with these machines some of these uh, fortune mulchers are designated skid steers are designated forestry mulchers now and they're set up with uh, better cooling systems and more horsepower more hydraulic flow in order to push that head and then of course you get into the machines we run which are 300 horsepower to 600 horsepower machines you know they obviously more power bigger mulcher mulching attachments and more hydraulic flow better cooling packages on those machines they're just they're, they're made to to work on uh, on a larger scale Ryan, how does increased horsepower equate to value to the landowner? It's all about productivity and how fast you can complete a project. And what I've learned over the years is 
you can take a big machine and cut small material with it, but you can't take a little machine and cut bigger material with it. And there's just sometimes it's no different than any other piece of equipment. There's a difference between a D4 dozier and a D8 dozier. It's just they'll accomplish the same thing, but in some cases you need bigger machinery with more horsepower to be more productive. Um, we've learned with a bigger machinery, we have less breakdowns. Uh, you know, working a horseshoe mulcher is a very tough environment on equipment, especially uh, during the summer months when it's hot and it's dry. The machines we use, the big horseshoe mulchers, the tire units and the track units, they sit up higher off the ground. They've got better air circulation through the engine compartments and they run cooler and they seem to perform better during the extreme heat uh, of, you know, the extreme heat of the summer months. And we have less less downtime with our machinery, but we're also running them on larger scale on bigger projects. And so the bigger machinery, the, the more horsepower seems to be as much more productive for the type of applications we're putting these machines into. Not saying the small machines aren't good at all, because there's an application for those as well. And especially for these guys that got smaller tracks of land and cutting small material, those machines are good too. Yeah. And I, you know, it's like, I'd rather have it, not need it, that old adage, you know, it's just kind of like if you've ever towed something, you want to have a vehicle that's towing capacity that far exceeds what you're towing. It's no fun towing something that's right up on the edge of your towing capacity. You talked earlier about that applications where forestry mulcher is really needed. Uh, and I like what you said about it's site specific. And it's not that forestry mulcher can do some of the things that other types of equipment can do, but it's not always the best choice, but what we want to talk about today is when it is the best choice. So starting out with that invasive, you know, mid-story uh, material, what should a landowner be looking for? If he's walking out through his timber right now, uh, walking out across his land right now, what's a good indication that that mid-story is too far gone, too far beyond what, say, a, uh, a prescribed fire could handle and a forestry mulcher is going to be the right choice take a 20 year old pine stand that's been thinned and you're looking through that and you see a dense stand of mid-story material in that four to six inch range that's 20 to 30 foot tall dog hair thick stand of gum or regen pine in some cases you're going to have a hard time getting fire to bend that back completely so that's where a forestry mulcher get that down and get it on the ground and reduce that mid-story down to a point where you can manage it with fire and or herbicide. When it gets to fire breaks, I mean, how, are, how do you use these machines to create or maintain fire breaks compared to what we might be used to seeing? We've done a lot of fire breaks over the years using the mulchers. And uh, one of the reasons why some of these state agencies like the mulcher uh, initially is because we can go out go, go through there and initially open that fire break up anywhere from 18 to 20 foot wide so it's going to create a road or a trail access but also serve as a break as well now i'll be clear on this with a with a mulcher as far as using it to establish a fire break when i ran this on my personal property last year we cut the initial break around the entirety of the property the 78 acres we immediately went through there and disc half that 18 to 20 foot fire break or access around the entire property. There were some places where we had a lot of biomass buildup of wood chips that were there. And I'm, I'm saying this so that people are informed about what they should expect with that. You're right, Clint. They need to have, they need to either use a heavy fire break plow on the back of a dozer or a heavy offset plow on a, on a tractor. 
that break has got to be plowed dirt because if they leave that mulch there and it's not plowed after, that fire is going to burn right across that mulch because that mulch is a tinder box after it's laid there and dried out for any length of time. So, yeah, they're great to go in there and create a road access, widen it out so you can work your dozer, your tractor, and your, and your fire brake plow together. It'll create better access. You won't have unsightly piles pushed off to the side, um, root-wadded trees and that kind of stuff that's unsightly and it's pushed up on the property line. So the mulcher would be more somewhat of access and aesthetics, but you still need to come in there with a fire break plow and plow it before you burn because you've got fuel, live fuel laying on the ground there. When, they, when you mulch this and leave those wood chips there and they dry out, fire will definitely walk across it. So that's a very good point when it comes to uh, making fire breaks with a mulcher. You definitely got to come back and have that, that ground plowed where that break's going to be. It seems like there's no doubt with regards to aesthetics that the forestry mulcher wins because like you said, you're not leaving those, you're not leaving any material pushed up into piles. And one of the things I think that is attractive to me about it is that you're also not picking up near as much soil with, by doing that. We, we're learning more and more and more that the health of the soil equates to the health of our wildlife, the health of the timber that we've got growing. And, uh, the, the lack of disturbance to that soil is another thing that uh, is attractive to me uh, about forestry mulchers. You, you mentioned, you know, reclaiming roads. That's another thing I think of when I think about soil health is that's probably the most common place that I see erosion on a property uh, is dealing with the roads that are there. I mean, you see it a lot after you, you see a property that's had a regeneration cut or a cut over put on it and then all of a sudden the road washes out. So how, how are they helpful? I mean, is erosion the main benefit when you're talking about reclaiming roads uh, with a forestry mulcher? I think so. You know, one of the things in order to have a good road system is you've got to have sunlight hitting that road. If, if that road is, has got a lot of vegetation encroaching on it and you've got a lot of shaded areas on there, you're going to have constant, constant wet spots in that road system that never dry out, which is going to hold water, going to become a wet hole or a rut. And then, of course, if you got a property with a lot of topography, you, you know, and if it's been bladed, you're going to have you're going to have erosion to contend with. You, you hope that when they did the road initially, a lot of times these are on recreation. I mean, they're on timber tracks that timber companies have cut a road through in order to be able to get to their their loading deck sites, to access the property in order to to cut the wood off of it, and they'll push a road through there fast. They'll put the minimal amount of water bars in there. They don't use much gravel, and so you end up with erosion. But and where where the where the mulcher is really good is is widening those roads, getting those roads daylighted, and it can it can also create some edge effect too on those roads if you widen them out. I like to ride, widen those roads out, you know, anywhere from two to three head width wide, which would be about twenty to thirty feet on either side, and then you can keep it maintained with a with a rotary mower or, or, or herbicide, and you create a little edge there as well, but you open that up and get that vegetation that's encroaching on the road and allow that road to daylight so that it'll dry out. And that's important on any kind of woods roads for sure. Yep. And then you don't have to worry about trying to get grass reestablished on a road that was just pushed versus the mulch because you've already got it. So that's the cost savings, cost and time savings there too. Speaking from experience, cause I'm in the middle of trying to buy some highway mix or Brown top and Bahia mix to get on my roads to cut out the erosion. So I sure wish I had a lot of well-established grass across it. Yes, sir. Jumping to burning, 
you know, there's some species that you you're always fighting competition in, but you can't necessarily burn either because of the location they're at from a liability standpoint or because of the species that you're dealing with. How do you utilize the mulcher in those circumstances? Well, that's a good question because there are a lot of tracks, especially I'm here in West Central Georgia, and you go further north you go, the closer you get to Atlanta, you get into these more urbanized areas and you get on smaller land holdings. And you know as well as I do, Clint, when you start getting into these small land holdings, 200 acres or less, it gets harder and harder for people to burn, especially if they're in areas that are closer to these metropolitan areas. I know we've got a burn ban that kicked in here uh, on May 1st here in the county that that I'm located in. And it's because even though we're in a rural area, we're still considered metro Atlanta and they don't want any, any, any burning from May 1st to October 1st. So for a guy that's looking to try to do some habitat restoration work or trying to expand on some food plots or any type of work on his property, burning's not going to be an option. So that's where the, the mulcher can, can be of a benefit. Obviously, um, they can still continue on with some habitat restoration work. Uh, I go back to this every time. Fire is the, the cheapest and the best. In some cases, you're not allowed to do it and, and you can't do it. And so uh, you've got to look at alternative methods. What I've got on, on my property is I've got a stand of longleaf where we're, we're two areas in there that are running 12 or 13 years old, but the understory is large enough or tall enough that we've got some real concerns about burning in there that it would get too hot and get over the tops of the trees. So we've actually got mulching as a possible solution to get that fuel load down to That's reduce right. that risk and then turn around and start burning after that. I mean, do you do you see that use a lot? Absolutely. Fuel load reduction is a big part of our business. and U.S. Forest Service is really starting to push it all over the United States, especially in the western states, going there and do fuel load redu- reduction with these masticators because, uh, you know, there's areas out there that, you know, that they haven't, that hasn't seen fire in years. And that's, of course, we hear more about those large-scale wildfires out west, and a lot of it is because of lack of fire over the years. So they are, we're seeing a lot more state and federal contracts that are written specifically with fuel load reduction. And U.S. Forest Service is funding that, obviously, for, for those reasons. But um, from a private landowner standpoint, absolutely. Just like in your case, you recognize that this mid-story is up more than we can, you know, we're going to do more damage than good if we run fire through here. And so we need to get it down to get it down and, and then we can come back and run a fire through it. So absolutely, that fuel load is fuel load reduction is a big part of our business for sure. That fuel load reduction kind of goes hand in hand. You were talking about, you know, getting a property for lack of a better term, rehabilitated so that you can burn it. And I think that's one of the things that I really have always enjoyed about the forestry mulcher is you just, it's those instant results. I mean, aesthetically talking, if I'm working on selling a property and it's been mulched, it's much better. It's much more saleable in a lot of instances because people can see what's there it improves the way things look it improves the ability to access and see see what is there and uh that fuel load reduction you're talking about kind of goes hand in hand with that clint on your end when do you look to a forestry mulcher when you're getting a property ready to sell that varies by site as always most of our questions have it depends involved but 
if we're reclaiming roads or widening food plots that have had some encroachment on them through the years where, you know, people have just not bush hogged them as far out as they needed to. So limbs and, and saplings and everything else started closing them in. That's when we really see the most benefit, most bang for the buck, because it helps you really see the property for what it is and not, not its potential. Cause some of us do have an upper, have a problem seeing the forest for the trees, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So those are, you know, anything that creates better, access to your property from a uh, recreational standpoint or just from a showing standpoint, you know, the better off you're going to be. I've got some bottomland hardwoods on my property and I'm, I'm learning more and more. In fact, we're going to be doing a show here pretty soon on, on managing bottomland hardwoods. But one of the things I'm learning is the importance of making sure I don't disturb that root structure on those trees. Brian, how do you use forestry mulchers when root structures and things of that nature are of concern? That uh, is, is very important when you're talking about uh, doing a mid-story removal, um, especially if you've got a lot of leaf trees. We do a lot of work in Arkansas and a lot of work on these bottomland hardwood areas where they're trying to promote and, and improve uh, stand quality of red oaks that have been mismanaged due to poor water management for so long. So when we're working in those areas and we're trying to reduce some of that competition, some of the ash and the elm and some of the other invasive hardwood species that have tried to take over, we're careful about not having root, root disturbance, soil disturbance, minimal soil disturbance so we don't impact those trees. If you took something conventional type clearing machine, an excavator, a bulldozer in there and started to try to push around and root wad that, that material, you, you take a real chance on uh, damaging root structures on those leaf trees and a lot of those trees you know are on poor health anyways and any disturbance to them whatsoever will, will finish them off and uh, you'll see mortality rate on those trees because they've been they've been disturbed uh, from you know with a root structure so that's where the mulchers come in to play there as well like I said uh, earlier there's they're just another tool in the toolbox and that's where they really fit well in is they got minimal soil disturbance and you're not going to damage uh, uh root structures to uh, existing trees brian you were talking earlier you know we were kind of going over the difference between establishing these fire breaks and the actual functionality of those fire breaks you're still going to need to go back behind that mulcher and disc that ground up and get it to the dirt if you want that fire break to function both you and clint have mentioned expanding food plots so take me through what you do when you're when you're expanding a food plot with forestry mulcher and do you do you have to come back behind that forestry mulcher with a with another type of implement to say remove stumps or, or anything like that? You know, you mentioned root raking like with a bulldozer or something like that. How are you using forestry mulchers for expanding food plots? Just like Clint mentioned earlier, really expanding um, those food plots that have had encroachment where, like you said, they haven't been mowed. Your vegetation keeps keeps encroaching. We can reclaim that vegetation relatively easily some areas we built a three acre food plot for a gentleman the other day and it was uh, an area of regen a place been timbered not long ago and it was probably three-year-old material and it was mainly regen pine and hardwood and gum and so it didn't have big stumps and it cleaned up real nice and he can go through there now with a with a with a disc hair chisel plow and, and start getting some uh site preparation for that food plot to get it to an ag ready state but in some cases, the mulcher is not going to work for food plot, uh, establishing new food plots, because if you're talking about an area that you want to make ag ready, put into a food plot that you're going to plant and farm, you know, if you're talking bigger trees, anything more than about 
you know, eight inches in diameter, six to eight inches in diameter, you're going to have to go through there and you're going to need to stump it. You're going to have to root rake it and get that ground where you don't have stumps and, and big roots that are still in soil. Because if you just went there and, and, and mulched it, then, you know, you're leaving all those stumps in the ground and it's going to be several years before you're going to be at a point where you can run any kind of ag equipment through there, if that makes sense. Yep, it does. Thinking about expanding food plots you know i was i was on my place just this past weekend and walked down to a small little kill plot little hidey hole food plot if you want to call it that and uh was walking through the the knee-high grass and out comes this hen turkey and she was very very upset with me she was not appreciative of me being there and i noticed there was about 12 of these little fist-sized poults running around at my feet and she uh she let me know I needed to move on and I did I let her have her space but that got me to thinking you know man if I'd cranked up my tractor and ran down here with the bush hog to try to work on this this food plot I might have done something that I'd have been really upset with myself with so when you're thinking about using a forestry mulcher and you're thinking about the time of year to do this kind of work I mean I would imagine some of it is is going to be dependent on the property and, and what kind of habitat project you got going on and that kind of thing. But what's ideal? What's, or maybe what's, what's not ideal? What do people need to be thinking about uh, with regards to, to the wildlife and maybe when they don't want to have a forestry mulcher on their property. And, and that being said, take us through getting one onto the property and maybe a little bit better planning to do that so that we are taking care of the resources that are out there. Two things that come into play here. Number one is we 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 want to minimize impact to the to the environment with heavy equipment. So we want to be sure it's dry enough to work this heavy equipment. Um, you don't want to be in there when it's too wet and you have excessive rutting. You know, if you're on track equipment, you're turning, you're having lots of soil disturbance that you that you may not want to have that can damage plant communities. That's one part of it. And then two, the timing of the year. Right now we are in the middle of ground nesting bird season, we're on the cusp of fawning season. So ideally, if it was a perfect world, it'd be nice if we didn't run any mechanical equipment from uh, March 1st or, you know, somewhere, you know, mid-March till July 1st. And it's going to be dependent on where you're at in the country as well. I know like in Alabama, your, your fawning season is a little bit later, but typically speaking, you know, you, we're, we're in the nesting season right now. Anytime you're running heavy equipment, uh, you're going to take a chance on uh, some wildlife mortality. Sometimes we have to work when we have to work sometimes simply because just the, the, the nature of the job or weather conditions, uh, there's just a lot that goes into it. But we try to minimize the impact to wildlife. Uh, we might be able to find an area. Uh, for instance, uh, we we did a quail unlimited project for state agency several years ago, and the, it was predominantly red cedar. It was canopy closure. There was virtually no grass, no weeds, no forbs, no vegetation in that understory whatsoever. It was clean, and it was evident there was no there was nothing living in there. There was no there was there was no there was no deer bedding in those areas, no ground nesting birds in these areas. So we were able to work that area in June with virtually no disturbance to any wildlife because it was a biological desert in there and we were able to work our machinery in that particular area on that particular project with, with minimal, minimal impact to the wildlife. 
So yeah. I think it's going to be site specific a lot of times on that. And also to when are the conditions most favorable to get in there and do this type work? Because what I've learned over the last few years, the way these intense winters and springs are with wet weather, we're knocked out for three to four months out of the year on being able to do any work with this heavy equipment uh, in fear of, of, of doing irreversible damage to the resource and to the, to the soil working that heavy equipment so we got a narrow window as it is and then you start throwing in you know trying to work around you know wildlife it, it makes it a challenge so it sounds like it's a lot like burning where you're just gonna you're gonna pick your timing and pick your rotation so you're not doing it all at once so you, you can kind of set up some stages to where like with burning you do rotational burning to where you've got a, a plan in place and you're and you're moving across the track but you're not necessarily hitting it all at once so if there is any impact on anything that uh, it's it's minimal. Absolutely. You're exactly right, Clint. And that's, you said it right there, planning. And I think that's the biggest thing with anybody that's, that's looking at these different tools for uh, managing their property for wildlife or for recreational use or timber. It's got to be a plan. You, you, you really need to think carefully prior to, to putting, putting equipment on there. You need to do your homework, work with a forester or with a biologist, come up with a, a good plan, come up with maps, have a vision map on that as well on what your objectives are and where you want to be with this in five years. And once you get that property mapped out, stand maps, acreages on those different stands of, of timber and habitat, and then you start trying to determine when, when you're going to do this work and who's going to do this work, then get boots on the ground because everything changes. You can look at aerial photos and Google Earth all day long, but everything's different in the woods once you get out there and you get boots on the ground and you actually start walking it and able to visually look at everything, determine what's going to be best at what time of year for that particular project. Well, I know there's a lot of folks out there that, you know, turkey season's over with, they're, they're out of things to hunt, but they, so they're starting to think about well, what can I do on my property so I can get up there, you know, and, and accomplish something. And what I'm hearing you say is this time of year, best thing you could do might be just to do some planning on what you're going to do and go ahead and set into motion the people that are going to do this work, get them together, get them basically sitting on go so that when the conditions are right, whether that's wildlife conditions or soil moisture conditions, that they're ready to go because this isn't something that somebody's going to be able to say, all right, yeah, I need some of that forestry mulching. Well, I guess I'll get that done this weekend. I mean, what what's the timeline on uh, being able to, if somebody says today, uh, I, I think I need this, what needs to happen next? Do they, do they need to get somebody out on their property first and get that plan together? And, and how long is it going to take to get somebody contracted and, and the work completed? That's another good, real good question because it takes time to one plan. A lot of your foresters and biologists are busy, so you need to coordinate with them. That's the reason why those winter months when it's cold and it's wet, that's a great time to start reaching out to these people. Uh, but this time of year, you know, you got to think about it. We're, we're going to blink our eyes and in, in, in 90 days. Uh, we're going to be creeping up on hunting season. Over here in Georgia, you know, our bow season starts in, uh, in mid-September. So if you've got any thoughts about doing any kind of work on your property, now's the time to start reaching out to your contractors to try to see what their scheduling is, get on their list, because once things start drying out, once we get past some of this fawning season and we start getting closer to uh, to hunting season and people getting geared up to plant food plots and starting to get back on the property and realizing they need to get their roads cleaned up. Uh, it's going to be right there 
right there at it. And, and a lot of people are busy that time of year. I know we're getting ramped up big time right now. We've got a, a workload to keep us busy through the end of the year as it stands. So if somebody's, somebody's out there and wants, uh, wants some work done, they need to be calling now because good contractors, reputable contractors are, are, are busy and you need to get on their radar screen pretty quick if it's something you want to do before this hunting season rolls back around. Well, Brian, I know we're looking forward to continuing to talk to you about habitat management, what people can be doing on their property right now and, and coming up in the future. Forestry mulching is one of those things, but you guys offer a lot of different services. So, you know, tell everybody again what all you offer through Brush Clearing Services and how they can contact you if, if they're looking for these kind of things on their property. We specialize in the uh, mechanical habitat restoration work with the forestry mulchers. Like I said, that's been a big, a big part of our business since 2005. And we work all over the southern half of the United States, based out of Georgia, but we work all over the south. But we also, uh, we do a lot of work with uh, private landowners. And, and uh, I've got uh, several really good biologists and foresters that work with us to help plan and to, to prescribe what's best for that individual's property and what's best for the resource. We offer food plot uh, consultation and food plot management and planning. So we, we've got, we've got, we offer, we offer a lot. We've got really good people uh, that are very qualified that can help with a lot of different things as far as wildlife and recreational properties concerned. They can reach me at 706-718-1690 or, or they can, uh, Go to our website, www.brushclearingservices.com, and they can reach us through that as well. Well, Brian, thanks again for joining us, and, and you're obviously a, a wealth of knowledge on on a lots of different types of habitat management, and I uh, hope folks will reach out to you if they're looking for help on their property this year and going into this next hunting season. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, Joe, for having me again today, and I look forward to working with you guys in the future. Guys, let's take a quick break and hear from this week's sponsors. Photonis Defense is proud to offer the PD Pro line of night vision systems. These ultralight, ultra-compact night vision systems deliver the cleanest image, best resolution, smallest, most transparent halo, and best overall performance and function of any night vision system available. Check them out. Photonis Defense, Masters of Darkness. And also brought to you by SunSouth. Does quality equipment really make a difference? Well, just climb into that legendary yellow seat on a John Deere from SunSouth and see for yourself. They'll help you get the right tractor with the right implements to meet your needs. And SunSouth makes owning a John Deere easy and more affordable than ever during their Summer of Savings event with 0% financing up to 72 months on a select equipment. Do more, save more with John Deere from SunSouth. Equipment for those that do. Some restrictions apply. See dealer for details. Expires June 30th, 2021. Clint, you know what I like about Brian is he obviously does forestry mulching, but him bringing the light that it's just a tool in your tool belt. You know, there's certain applications where a bulldozer is going to be better than a forestry mulcher. And him just being able to say that, you know, that it's not always going to be the right tool, but it is a, it is a really good tool, uh, in certain applications. And I still have my dream of jumping on one and tearing off through the forest. Maybe I can talk to Brian about that. Yeah. I'd have to be careful cause I'd end up rolling over merchantable timber or everything else just cause it looks so pretty. So I just want to keep on going. 
Yeah, take out. That'd be a good. I feel like that'd be a good Friday activity. You know, some stress relief on the on the forestry mulcher. But, yeah, uh, that might be his next business plan. It's just pile stuff up on empty lots and let people come run over it. <laughs> hey, they do it in Vegas. You know, come run the heavy equipment for. You can pay us one hundred and fifty bucks an hour to come run the stuff. Might be something to that. But uh, yeah. you know, folks, if you got questions on forestry mulching that didn't get answered today we want to hear from you so make sure you check us out in the land group on facebook or email us at pros at landhunting.com let us know what you want to know about we got a bunch of great content coming up but we sure would love to hear from you if you've got something you're interested in and want to see us make a show out of it definitely reach out to us and speaking of listening we want to make it easy for you to listen to each new show as soon as it is ready. So here's a handy option for you to get the podcast emailed to you each week. Just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. You'll join our email list and wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got a show topic, that you are interested in and like to see us cover, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. That's going to do it for us. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time. This week's Hunt and Land podcast has been brought to you by Brush Clearing Services. Check out their full line of property and land services at brushclearingservices.com or call them at 706-718-1690. And also SunSouth, own the best for less. Visit SunSouth for quality John Deere equipment you've been dreaming of or visit sunsouth.com. SunSouth, for those that do. And also brought to you by Bucks Island Marine. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. You can visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also, the Alabama Ag Credit, as the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops, because sometimes natural resources need financial resources and while some lenders don't get it they do learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com this week's show has been brought to you by joe Baya and clint flowers members of the top producing team at national land realty the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation bottom line we know land and now is a great time to buy or sell want to know why shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855 nlr land And also by Great Days Outdoors magazine. Are you looking for that one-of-a-kind Father's Day or Mother's Day gift? If so, head on over to greatdaysoutdoors.com and check out the best gifts for outdoorsmen 2021. We've curated a bunch of unique ideas to help you find that awesome gift for the outdoorsman on your list. Just head over to greatdaysoutdoors.com slash bestgiftsforoutdoorsmen to check it out.